Hello everyone, Al from Points of Insanity Game Studio here, coming at you with another episode of Geekery in General, episode 199. Now at the time of this recording, episode 200 has already been recorded and has been fully edited and will be dropping shortly. Now, you know, probably next week. And that was actually a very fun episode, uh, had chad back on the show as well as a special guest well what's who is this special guest well you're gonna have to listen to the next episode to find out now aren't you but longtime listeners to the show you probably remember that a while ago i started doing a series where well for actually uh several consecutive episodes i discussed the manual of the planes in first edition and talked about some of the historical, religious, and mythological roots of how these different planes were pictured in 1st Edition's Manual of the Plane. Started out with the Nine Hells, then moved on to the Seven Heavens, also touched on some of the other major ones like Nirvana and the Abyss, Gehenna, uh, the Concordant Opposition. So I've done most of them. There's still a few that... I have left to do, so I'm going to try to finish those up because, hey, you know, never leave something unfinished, right? So I might as well continue with, uh, you know, doing these uh, episodes. I actually really enjoy them. I do enjoy doing the research, as sick and twisted as that may sound, but I don't know, maybe it's just the gamer in me because really you look at a lot of mythology and classical literature, there's actually some pretty cool ideas for things that you might be able to use in your D&D campaign. And really, you look at some of the, well, a lot of the uh, well-known monsters that we see in Dungeons & Dragons, like Minotaurs, Harpies, uh, you know, Medusa, you know, coming from Greek mythology, There's also monsters in there from Japanese and other Asian mythologies, uh, Norse mythology. So definitely a lot of mythological influence in D&D. We also see this with some of the magic items in there. Uh, For example, the dancing sword may have been inspired by uh, the sword of the Norse god Frey. And it was said that this sword could fight by itself. And Javelins of Lightning, you could say maybe those were influenced by uh, Zeus and how he threw the uh, lightning bolts. So just a couple of magic items that have those influences. But we're not talking about magic items today. We're going to be talking about the plane of Tartarus. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, 
Or we're just horrifically bad puns. We've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. Now, we already touched a little bit on Tartarus a few episodes ago. Well, actually, it's been probably a couple dozen episodes ago. It was a while ago. Uh, my friend Dawn and I, we did an episode on Hades. And when we look at Tartarus in Greek mythology, it was actually considered a part of Hades, as in it was a place of punishment. And it was said to be deep below the earth, as deep below the earth as is the, the heavens are above the earth. So it's said that if you took an anvil from the heavens and dropped it, it would take nine days to reach the earth. And if you were to take an anvil and Advil, sorry, uh, not anvil, not a, a pain medication, but an Advil. And if you were to drop it from the earth to Tartarus, it would take another nine days before it reached the Tartarus. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Tartarus, it was considered both a deity as well as a place of imprisonment. This is the place where the Greek gods would imprison the Titans who rebelled against them. Well, actually, no, that's wrong. Uh, actually, the, the, the Greek gods rebelled against the Titans. So this is where several of the Titans were imprisoned. And not only that, there were also various monsters and giants that were imprisoned here as well. It's said that Kronos had imprisoned the Cyclopses here, as well as the, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, the Hecatonchires, which are 100-armed giants. Now, eventually, these giants were freed by Zeus in order to help him fight against the Titans. And after the war of the Olympians versus the Titans was over, Zeus had many of the Titans imprisoned in Tartarus. But it was not only Titans who could be imprisoned and punished here, it was also said that mortals who committed very serious sins and offenses against the gods were imprisoned here as well. Dawn and I already talked about some of these uh, these people, such as Sisyphus, who he was forced forced to push a boulder up a hill, but whenever he's almost to the top, it rolls down and crushes him, so he has to start over again. Uh, Tantalus, I think, was the other one. He was the one who he's forced to stand in a stream of water, and whenever there's a, a a fruit tree above him, and whenever he tries to reach up to grab fruit, it would always move away from him, and whenever he tries to bend down to drink the water, it goes too low. And then uh, another one, I forgot their names, but there were three women there who uh, they had to carry water to a, a tub, and it was said if they filled up this tub, they could wash their sins clean. But since the tub was full of cracks, they would never be able to uh, fill the tub. The Romans also saw this as a place of punishment, and they added some details as well. They believed it was guarded by a hydra with 50 heads, and they also added walls of adamantine, as well as a river of fire around it to prevent sinners from escaping. 
Tartarus also appears outside of Greek and Roman mythology. It does appear in the book of Enoch, and it is the place where 200 fallen angels were said to be imprisoned and guarded by the angel Uriel. Tartarus is also briefly mentioned in the New Testament. In Second uh, Peter, there is a phrase that in Greek use is uh, Tartaru, which means throw to Tartarus, and it's a shortened uh, version of a phrase to throw down to Tartarus. So again, we see it playing a very similar tradi- um, very similar role to hell in uh, the Abrahamic religions as this place of punishment. Now, of course, Manual of the Plains took a lot of liberties when they were describing Tartarus. And honestly, when I read the description, and there's actually a a picture in there as well to help you kind of visualize it, they picture Tartarus as a string of pearls. And the picture on page 104 of your Manual of the Plains book, it shows there are there's the big sphere that has several different uh, layers. And what's interesting is, well, when you're on one of these layers, uh, you might be able to see some of the other of these spheres in the sky. But as you go down to the next level, the other one would, well, it would be, they get progressively further away. It's said at the uppermost layers, it's only about a 100 or so miles away from each other, but eventually they start to get into the millions of miles away from each other. So like I said, it's kind of weird. Like, let's say you're on sphere number 10, and you go down to level 2 on sphere 10. Well, supposedly somewhere out in the sky there is sphere number 9 and sphere number 11. But again, if you're on the second level, you're also going to be only able to see the second levels. And, oh, gosh, my brain hurts just thinking about how this is supposed to work. But then again, it is a fantasy role-playing game. so. Screw physics, because role-playing games! Yes, I did kind of steal that one from Pro Jared, but anyways, to continue. So there are a total of six layers in Tartarus. The first is called Othris, and this is a marshy layer that has some mountains in it. And it's said that the ground here very soft and squishy, uh, basically kind of like uh, peat is how they describe it in the Manual of the Plains. Next is Cathris, and this is a realm of jungles and grasslands. It's said that the plants here secrete acid, so if you're not properly protected, you take a little bit of damage um, every so many rounds. The next layer is Minthris, and this is described as a windswept desert with poisonous dust storms that act like a cloud kill spell. And every 10 days, huge tornadoes rip across the landscape, which carry anything in their way to another orb. So again, this is where it's kind of weird where, like I said, let's say you're on that, well, that's going to be the fourth layer, I'm sorry, the third layer. And if you're on third layer of sphere 10, and then you 
uh, you know, get carried away by one of these tornadoes, you're going to find yourself on, I don't know, maybe Sphere 11 or Sphere 12. You know, and it's interesting. I wonder if they, they're intending each of these, each of these, uh, spheres to kind of be like an own, like an alternate reality or an alternate universe of another one of those. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading a little too much into it. The next layer is Colothis, and this is described as a mountainous realm with great chasms. And the spheres here are actually very, oh, they're like, kind of like uneven, uh, spiky balls. That's kind of how they explain it. The fifth layer is Porphatis, and this is a wet and cold layer. So with the exception of the mountainous areas, most of this layer is covered between one to six feet of acidic water. Because it said it's um, almost always snowing on this layer. And that, trust me, that sounds like hell to me, especially considering the winter that we just uh, endured here in uh, Wisconsin, where we had a couple of uh, really large snowfalls, including our uh, blizzard in April. That was fun. No, it wasn't. But anyways, so it's the snow also has that acidic property. And when, you know, the snow hits the ground, with the exception of the tops of the mountains, it melts and it starts to uh, flood the rest of the layer. And then finally is Agathis. And this is a cold, icy layer uh, covered by dark ice with red streaks. Now, surprisingly, uh, there really aren't a lot of historical deities that are pictured as having homes here. Probably the most well-known is Kronos. And this makes sense because, again, it harkens back to Greek mythology where... Uh, after the war between the gods and the titans, Kronos and his uh, kin, or at least most of his kin, were exiled to uh, Tartarus for punishment. Now, Kronos was the son of Uranus and Gaia. It's said that he castrated his father and took his power. He uh, ascended the throne with his sister queen, Rhea, and together they had a total of six kids. Now, after the first five were born, and that was Demeter, Hestia, Hera, Hades, and Poseidon, he ate each of them. But Rhea, after Zeus was born, uh, hid him to protect him and gave him a rock to swallow instead. Now, despite this, it was said that Kronos ruled over a golden age. And it was a time when there was no need for laws because everyone did the right thing. So everything had this uh, perfect social order. Eventually, though, he was overthrown by Zeus and imprisoned in Tartarus. Though according to some myths, it was said he was later released and given rulership over Elysium. Now, the Greeks had a festival to honor him called Cronia. And this is actually similar to the Feast of Saturnalia, which is the Roman counterpart to honor Saturn. Now, this was seen as a time when the rules of social order were suspended. 
So slaves would look forward to this festival because they were actually given a well a lot more freedom. They would uh, actually be able to wander around freely, and not only that, uh, their masters would actually serve them for a change. It was also said that this was a time of parties, merrymaking, and gift-giving. Now, in the, the Roman counterpart in Saturnalia, uh, the Romans had a habit of giving these little figures to people, to their friends or relatives, and some people suggest have suggested that there may have been some human sacrifice in ancient Roman religion, and during Saturnalia, these little figures may have been thought to have been a humane substitute for actually killing and sacrificing someone. But does Kronos really belong in a place like this? Honestly, it's kind of hard to say. And I guess it's because we kind of see both sides of him. He is sometimes seen as a god of chaos, but he also does have that lawful aspect to him. And it's, like I said, he was believed to have ruled over a golden age when laws were unnecessary. So presumably, this is before Pandora opened the box and released all the evils in the world. Now, I don't necessarily think he really belongs here, though. Um, It seems that he would probably be a little bit better suited towards a plane that was lawful neutral with evil tendencies like Acheron, which is another realm I hope to cover in an upcoming episode. But I I guess it makes sense that they put him here, though, because, again, Tartarus in Greek mythology was a place of punishment and imprisonment, and that is where uh, it said that Zeus put him after the War of the Titans was done. There's also a couple of Finnish deities here. Now, the first one doesn't actually seem like a deity, and that is Surma. This is actually a great beast that looks like a large dog with a snake for a tail, and he can turn people into stone. Now, in Finnish mythology, he guards Tuwanla. Now, you might remember I talked a little bit about Tuwanla back when I did my episode on Gehenna, because in Finnish translations of the Bible, sometimes Tuwanla, which is the underworld of Finnish mythology, is sometimes used interchangeably with Gehenna. It's said that Surma is the guardian of Tuwanla, similar to Cerebus and the way that he guards uh, Hades in Greek mythology. His job is to keep the dead in and keep the living out. His domain is described as a realm filled with open graves where the undead walk freely. And the only other deity they mention from history, they do mention a hill giant god being here too, but uh, they're also the Finnish goddess Kaputyoto, and I probably did not pronounce that correctly, but she is the goddess of illness and pain, and it's said that she inhabits a poisonous domain where uh, there's great clouds that act, again, kind of like a, a cloud kill or a stinking cloud spell. 
Now, as far as how she was seen in mythology, it was said that she creates pain by turning a rock in her hand. And there are actually even some Finnish spells that invoke her. However, she may have been seen as having somewhat of a dualistic aspect to her. While she's the goddess of illness and pain, it's believed that there's some of these rune spells that were used to uh, invoke her to take away that illness or pain. For example, there is one spell to her that goes as follows. Torture daughter of Tuoni, sitting on the Mount of Anguish, at the junction of three rivers, turning rocks of pain and torture, turn away these fell diseases through the virtues of the blue stone, lead them to the water channels, sink them in the depths of the ocean, where the winds can never find them, where the sunlight never enters. So essentially, in this case, you're asking the goddess to take whatever pain and ailment is uh, hurting you, and take it and stick it where the sun don't shine. So how might we use Tartarus in a D&D campaign? Now, as far as alignment goes, it would be chaotic evil with neutral evil tendencies, as it is situated between the Abyss and Hades. And according to Manual of the Plains, it was once connected to Hades, which would also help connect it to Mount Olympus. But after the Titans were exiled, the Olympians destroyed the connection between those two planes. It's said to be a battleground for demons from the Abyss and daemons from Hades. So if you are running a higher level evil campaign, I could see taking them into uh, this realm in order to you know, have them fight on behalf of one side or the other. Now it's also said that Kronos, he is biding his time. He is making his plans to break free from Tartarus and uh, retake Mount Olympus from the, uh, the Greek gods. So another interesting way you might be able to use Tartarus is, well, if, again, if you're doing an evil campaign, you might have your, your characters working for Kronos as he sends them on uh, quests, perhaps to recover things that are seemingly innocent, but these items that he's having you recover might be the key that he needs to his future plan to overthrow Zeus. Now, since Tartarus is a realm of imprisonment, another really challenging adventure idea might be that your characters have to somehow take some powerful creature and find a way to imprison it on this plane. So that could be really challenging because, well, again, as you guessed from the way that I've described the different layers here, they're not pictured as being very hospitable places. So you're not only do you have to find a way to take this powerful creature there, but you have to survive the conditions while you imprison it. And like a lot of the outer planes where there's not too many details given, I think it would be fun to put some sort of ancient ruin there, something that's so ancient, not even the deities and the demons who call that plane home 
are aware of who built it or where it came from. So that could be a good unknown dungeon for you to explore to try to recover some lost powerful item or maybe recover a lost magic spell of great power. Well, I think that's about all I have to say about Tartarus for now. So, hope you enjoyed the show as I've been going to try to return a little bit more to some of my roots, uh, talking a little bit more about Dungeons and Dragons for the next few episodes. So, thanks again for tuning in, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross-promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com, and we'll set something up.